Welcome one and all to episode 109 of the Doss and D Show and today is a very unique episode with an international facial profiler, Alan Stevens. Alan is a profile, communications and body language specialist. Put simply, by taking a quick glance at your face, he can immediately identify characteristics about you both learned and passed on, as well as subconsciously communicating how he wants to be spoken to. He shared with us just some of the amazing clients he's worked with over the years, including the police force, business people, teachers, students, parents, and even people looking for love, all with different wants, needs, and outcomes. But it got way more deeper than just the unbelievable work he does. He shared the heartwarming stories of profiling young kids who are struggling at school to help them build friendships, identify the types of learners they are, help choose a suitable career path, and understand how to communicate with their parents to build a happier, healthier relationship. He touched on generational differences that impact communication and shared some amazing life advice about the importance to listen, empathise and understand one another, which seems to have been lost with the noise of the world today. We had a laugh when Alan accurately profiled us and even shared some of the cheeky advantages of practising these skills. This episode is just full of so many fascinating talking points and we're so excited for you to hear this one. And guys, just a reminder, hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode of the show. But now, without further ado, here is our chat with the great Alan Stevens. Welcome to the Doss and D Show. Smashing societal pressure and unlocking your secret ambition. Now, Doss, are you ready for our next interview? D, I'm ready. Now, let's go balls deep. Doss, this is going to be an interesting one today. Bring it on, bring it on, I say. Bring it on. So let's welcome our guest, Alan Stevens. Welcome to the Doss and D Show. Thanks, guys. I've been uh, looking forward to it. You sent me the request the other day, and I thought, looking at what you're doing, I wanted to uh, jump in and share what I can uh, share. Oh, absolutely, mate. We're so excited. Our listeners are going to love this podcast, I can just tell. So to kick things off, tell us a little bit about you and uh, the profiling and your background. Oh, I'm a, uh, you see by my age, I'm a bit of the older vintage. I've been around for quite some time. I'm a uh, father of three sons and a grandfather of six grandchildren. And that's been a lot of fun watching them grow up. On the profiling side of things, I uh, teach people how to read each other to build stronger relationships. Not like on you might watch on some of the TV show which shows where they use it to uncover uh, lies and uh, cheats and things like that or to manipulate people. It's about how can I read you to understand you and know how to speak to you in the way that you need to be spoken to so we can have a stronger relationship. And that's the main reason I got into uh, profiling was that I was lousy at it. I was having problems building relationships. I've been through two divorces. I've had a lot of broken relationships. I'd even had business partners who emptied the bank out and I just didn't see it coming. Quite a number of years ago, I decided I needed to find out more about that. And that's what led me into uh, uh, learning how to read faces. Yeah, so with the profiling, Alan, I guess, where has it taken you in terms of different areas of career. I'm sure you've probably worked in different sectors with it. You know, it's such a unique and niched skill. Yeah, well, in all the networking groups I'd go to, I kept on hearing people saying, what do you bring to the table? And I just heard it over and over. And one day I was a bit facetious and I just turned around and I said, I just bring the damn table. <laughs> and it was said, and I thought, as I was saying it, I thought, yes, I do. Because at the end of the day, no matter what sort of service or uh, product or whether you're trying to make a connection with somebody, if you don't build a relationship, you're never going to be able to show people how good you are, whether that be uh, selling a product or whether it be finding a partner. So you've got to be able to build that relationship. And so that's the foundation of everything we do. And if people are putting things on the table, the, fa- the table's a foundation, and therefore that's what I do. I bring uh, bring the table. And so that's taken me to clients like Disney Films, Gillette, the Federal Police, the tax office, businesses of all sizes and parents and school teachers every area of life. And we're looking forward to diving into that. So I think to give the listeners a bit of a perspective, because to be honest with you, before I spoke or met you, I didn't really understand what a profiler does. So in layman's terms, can you explain exactly how it works and what you do? First of all, I started off learning about uh, body language when I was put in charge of a group of men who are all older than me. And I'd never had a team under me before. And that was, I was thrown in right at the deep end. So I started with body language to understand that. Then over the years, I'd learned other skills with psychometric profiling where you give people questions and you work their personalities out. And then with NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, how we use the language to steer conversations. But I realized about to mid-2000s, I got involved in uh, reading faces. So the facial features and the facial expressions. Facial features, if I've got your photograph, I've got your personality because 
you think about it, if you lift weights, you're going to build muscles in your body, like bicep curls and things like that, you know, leg extensions, whatever muscle you work, you'll develop it. At the same time, everything we feel inside, we express outwardly. So when you're concentrating and thinking and working away, you're going to be pulling expressions. The repetitive movement of those muscles, you're going to create ridges and crevices on your face, which is what I call the nurture traits, how you've responded to your environment. But there's also traits that were passed down to your parents, what we call the nature traits, which are in the overall structure of the face, etc. So putting that together, I've got your personality. Then I know how to change the way I like to be spoken to to match the way that you need to be spoken to in the way that you prefer to be treated as well. And mm. so doing that, I've now got the language. But while I'm doing that, no matter how many people I've profiled, and there's been tens of thousands over the years, I never assume that I'm 100% right. This is why I use the body language and the little expressions you have on their face, the, what they call micro-expressions, that you can't control. They happen unconsciously. Mm. That tells me whether I've read you right, is there something emotionally going on, and yes, are you telling me the truth? But wow. Where some use the facial expressions and body language to determine whether you're telling lies, as a lie detector, I'm using it as a truth seeker. Mm. Because if, as I said, if I've picked up something emotionally is going on, there's a valid reason for that in your world. So if I have a chat, if I'm trying to sell a product, I'm wasting my time trying to sell to you if your mind's on something else. Yeah. Mm. We can have that conversation and I can uh, you know, steer things around to where we can, you know, I'll give you some ideas. You'll fix the problem yourself while we're talking. We've built strong rapport at that point. I can go back to the sale then or I know that you're going to come back to me later on because you have a trust in the fact that I wasn't just trying to sell you on the spot. I was really interested about you. Mm. And so building that relationship. And so that's where the uh, micro expressions and the uh, uh, body language round it all off. It's mind-blowing, to be honest. It, it almost sounds like Alan's like the real-life uh, iPhone facial recognition, you know, the, uh, <laughs> he's, but he's the real deal. He's yeah. the, Alan, can, can this be taught? Like, I'm just wondering, it's not something that we're necessarily, you know, we're taught, obviously, manners and be respectful and, and basic, but we're never taught how to actually try and read people's emotions or understand. Like, there's empathy, but mm. this is to another level. What you do, do you teach it? Yeah, but what I really do, I'm not really teaching it. What I'm doing is refreshing it. Yeah. As a young child, this was natural in every child. Now, how many times, ask any parent who's got young children, how often do the kids push them to the edge but not push them over the edge? The only time where the parent might lose it is when the child doesn't know about other stresses that are there and they respond a little bit quicker. So the children are reading you all the time. You know, department stores know that as well. They put all the stuff on the shelves where the kids can see it because they know the kids are going to uh, throw a tantrum. They'll be able to read the parent and the parent will end up giving in mm. and they get more uh, products sold. But every child, we needed to be able to recognise someone's facial features. Was that a friend? Was it a family member? You know, tell us more about that. Secondly, then it's a case of, okay, what state are they in? You know, we want to be able to pick up their emotions. And so you've got the child then having recognised somebody. Is it somebody I should be around or shouldn't be around? What's their emotional state? If it ends up being somebody that they shouldn't be around and that person is looking angry, put those two things together. There's your facial features and your expressions and body language. Get the hell out of there. Whereas if it's somebody who's a friend, you recognise them as a friend and they're angry, you might go, hey, what's going on? Because as you mentioned, this is where the empathy comes in. You know, because we have three levels of empathy. We have cognitive. We, I can recognise somebody's in pain. Now, even a torturer needs that level. Otherwise, they can't get their jollies. They need to recognise. Then you've got emotional empathy, which is I feel your pain. And then they've got the next level, which is compassionate empathy, where let's fix this. Mm. If I, any of those three are going to work, the more I can read you, the more I can then get those right. Because we see most people getting it wrong these days on Facebook and other things where somebody puts a post up and people jump in and they're arguing. And I'm yeah. going, what are you arguing about? Because you haven't even looked at what the other person said. You've been triggered. And so everyone's in their emotional empathy, but very few people come into with the compassionate uh, side of it to actually fix the problems. So when you bring it together, being able to read somebody at that level, you fully understand it, but it's not a matter of manipulating. It's a matter of being able to um, build a relationship with them and solve problems. So as a child, you had the gift, but then you got involved in school, you got involved in sports and whatever else you're focusing on, because we take in 2 million bits of information every second, but process about 134 bits. So that small bit that you focus on 
That's where your intention goes. That's where your focus goes. And everything else gets put aside. So if you were, you know, fit, you're built doing bicep curls and you stop doing it, the muscle's going to atrophy. So yeah. as we get older, we go, oh, I've got a gut feeling something's going on, but I don't know. Well, your unconscious mind is picking up the nonverbals, the stuff that we knew as a child. But because we've forgotten that skill, we don't recognize what it is. Now, as I said, with my background, if this had to be something that you couldn't be uh, taught or refreshed in the mind, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. And if I can do this with my background and what I went through, I reckon anybody can learn it. And so all I do is, well, if you were fit and you then, uh, you know, you raise children, you're you know, working in a business and everything else and you lose your, you know, your trim and you want to go and get fit again, you go and get a personal trainer. Mm-hmm. Well, really, I class myself as a personal trainer on reading people. Yeah. I help you redevelop the skill that you had as a young child. You mentioned the Facebook status, and I just want to quickly jump in before Dee asked a question, which was we are a very tech-focused world now, and mm-hmm. I remember my mum always saying to me, like, never have a serious conversation over text message with someone, you know, something that needs to be spoken about. Absolutely. Do it in person. I'm not sure if you would know much about it, but is it possible to read like profilings, obviously, you need to see a picture, I'm assuming. But where do you see it currently today with the text world and the social media world? Because we've mentioned the word empathy, like everyone is texting now. No mm. one's necessarily in person. Like it's it's very different. Mm. Can you read people's emotions with text at all? You can start to see when they start getting a conversation with the way they're responding to each other, you're picking up that, yeah, there's a problem in here and the emotions or whatever. But your mum's absolutely right. When you look at communication, it's made up of the words that we use, the tone of voice and the body language. Now, you put those three together, you have communication, so 100%. Each part is equally important because without one, then you don't have communication. You know, like body language and tone, I could be standing here moving around and grunting, but you wouldn't know what I was what, what I was saying. I need the words. But words are only worth 7% of the communication. On the phone, they only go up to 17% because, yes, you can't see the other person, but the tone of voice, the body language slips into the tone of voice. Tone of voice is about 38%. The body language is about 55%. So text should only be used for this is where I'm heading, this is how to meet me, points like that. Anything that has it's affecting people's emotions, have a voice call. Never do it just as text because if I said the words, I didn't say she stole the money. You'd read that in one way. But if I said I didn't say she stole the money, it means that somebody else may have. Mm. If I said I didn't say, then it could be that I actually wrote it. So the inflection tells changes the meaning of the sentence totally. Well, there's four things. Everybody is suffering or has suffered. Everybody wears a mask. Everybody pretends they're not wearing a mask. And everybody is a combination of all their childhood uh, rewards and sufferings. So with that... We are the sum of all of our experiences. And this is when people respond very quickly. They're responding with their emotions. They're not responding to what's been said or done. They say that when somebody turns around and starts talking about something in their life, before somebody else jumps in and gives advice, the average now is 19 seconds. How much information do you reckon you could have got from somebody in 19 seconds? You look at even some of the posts in Facebook, somebody starts to, they got a long post and they start at the top, somebody reads the first sentence and they're fighting with them straight away. They haven't read the rest of it because everybody is into speed. But the trouble is that ends up destroying the time that you have because now you create relationships and you destroy them and you've got to have all that problems in trying to get it back. If you break a relationship, you're probably off whinging about the other person mm. and wasting time there. Yeah. So by just doing text to be faster is not when you look at the bigger picture. You actually create problems with just going with the text because how many times you see people sitting around, I've seen them in restaurants, everyone's got their phone out and they're texting. Sometimes I wonder if they're texting each other, but they're not <laughs> yeah. talking to each other. If you have communication, because a lot of people are scared to go, okay, well, if I have a serious conversation with somebody, it could be taken the wrong way. Well, if you send it as, as text, it's guaranteed to be taken the wrong way. There was a skit uh, done by, um, I think it was a comedy club over in America, and uh, one guy rings his mate. And because one of them's sitting there half stoned and the other one is talking to him, the other one's just coming back and saying, oh, mate, whatever, 
This one over here is getting upset because he thinks this does this guy doesn't care. This guy thinks, oh, it's really great because he's thoughtful of me. Mm. And it gets to a point where they're about to have a fight. Simply because they weren't listening to what the other person was saying. As I say, you've got two eyes, two ears, one mouth. Use them in that proportion. And when you use your mouth, ask questions. I've I've seen the skit. It's Keel and Peel. It's it's a, yeah. it's very funny. Yeah, um, it's um, and I can't wait because Alan's actually being proactive in this space in terms yeah. of listening, which we're going to jump into later with the Campfire Project. But before we do, and I want to talk a little bit about you know our audience and their relatability, and we'll talk about relationships and and the work you do with children, which is really interesting. But before we do that, I'm really interested in the in your work with the police or in the past, and I would love you to share what that process is like. So typically, when you work with them, who are you working with? What role do you play? Well, the main uh, part was there's not, you know, I'm not in a position to get involved in cases because I'm not, you know, uh, authorised in that. No, it was mainly running workshops to help them to understand how to read other people, mostly gotcha. because I was looking at the point of view that a lot of them were looking at uh, going into areas where they're with criminals. And so, you know, it might be undercover, that sort of thing. They might be around people with guns, but all the people they're around in their normal environment are other policemen, friendlies. Yeah. The criminals know how to read each other. That's how they stay alive. They're really gifted in that particular area. So if the police were going to go into that environment, if they're not careful, they go in there, you know, the wolves pull over their eyes very quickly. And yeah. they think they're talking to somebody who's being truthful and they're not. You know, this is one of the reasons why criminals get away with so much. At the same time, one of the biggest issues in the police departments is poor leadership in a lot of cases where people get promoted, but they don't get taught how to, re- to lead their people their teams. And so there's a lot of uh, lack of leadership and therefore the guys on the front line, there's a lot of uh, PTSD, there's a lot of anxiety. And there've been a lot of cases where, uh, and we don't hear about it, death of police by their own gun, suicides, the anger that they uh, carry because they aren't getting supported. They're out there with criminals and bringing them in and they're, you know, a judge somewhere is letting them go. So a lot of their time feel they feel like they're wasting it. Because there's too many uh, hoops they've got to drop, you know, jump through and too many loopholes to uh, let people get away. It was to mainly help them to understand themselves, first of all. So if you understand how you like to process and do things, you know then what things in your environment will push your buttons. Sure. And therefore you can go, okay, I'm going to that situation, I need support. Or I can you know, get somebody else to do that for me who has a gift in that area. Because teams are made up of people who are t- totally different to each other. Because as I say to a lot of kids at school before they leave school, I ask them who they like and who they don't like. And I go, they say, oh, we like these ones. We don't like them over there. And I go, right, you know, their mates, why do you like them? Oh, they like the same things that we like. You know, we do the same sort of things. I go, great. What about those over there? Oh, no, they're completely different to us. And I go, right, well, when you go out to get a job, who's going to be going for the same job you're going for? Your mates. Who's going to be going for the same girls or guys that you're interested in? Your mates. Your mates are going to be your competition when you leave school and go to the real world. The other guys and girls, they they love doing the things you don't love doing. So they're happy to take those jobs off you. You may not want to take go on holidays with them on the weekend, but you're certainly glad they're there Monday to Friday in the same workspace. That's a great The people you don't like at school will probably be your best allies if you know how to treat them right now will be your best allies when you go into the workplace. Emotional intelligence versus reading people. The term gets flying around or you hear people go, you know, I'm a really emotionally smart person. Like I've, I've had bosses in the past who, you know, we've both had conversations, you know, we EQ it gets called, you know, I've got that feeling. I know how to connect with someone. But it sounds like, like I feel like there's can unfortunately be a bit, not a cop out, but with people that are leaders, they tend to say, oh, I'm not, an, I'm not an emotional person. But comparing it to profiling, it sounds like if you know how to read people, you're, you, you can align emotionally with it. whether it's employees or, or staff. Exactly right. See, when we put, talk about emotional intelligence, it's, you know, people get confused. It's like people talk about character and personality. Character and personality are two different things. It's like sales and marketing. They're two different processes. Character is how you like, uh, what you like to do, what you're thinking and what you're processing and going to do. Personality is how you go to do it. So two people have a similar personality. One can be a saint, one could be a sinner. Mm. So they're, they're completely different. It's the same thing with emotional intelligence. Some people think that when they talk about emotional intelligence, because they're empathetic, they can connect with people. 
that's the empathy side of things. That's the sorry, where the emotional uh, empathy is really having the empathy to understand other people. Now, if you can add to, to that how to read people, then you take that to another level. Two of them go well together. Yes, you can read somebody, know their personality, know how they're likely to act in any given situation, be able to pick up the indicators of their emotions and everything. But you can have total no care whatsoever. It's how you apply the reading is where the emotional intelligence comes in. So they actually combine at that point. So if you can read somebody and then with emotional intelligence, treat them in the way that they need to be treated, not just be able to read that that, that person behaves that way, but then know how to talk to them as well to steer the conversation, to help them to resolve the issues that they've got. So when people come to me and talk about the issues they're going through, I can ask them a question at the front and then say nothing for another 45, 50 minutes, as long as they're talking. But I'm listening all the way through and I'm actually hearing them and I'm listening to where their unconscious mind is steering their conscious mind. This is where emotional intelligence really comes in. It's being able to read what's going on in the other person not just what you're doing yourself. It's not about you. It's about the other person. All relationships are always about the other person. So speaking on relationships, tell us a little bit about your experience because I know, you know, you've, you've mentioned poor relationships in the past. It didn't work out. So, you know, skipping a few years forward where you've learned these skills and you understand and what do you, what kind of things do you look for when you're teaching people, when people have been taught, if they're on a first date with somebody, for example, and they're looking across the table, what kind of signals are you looking for or what, what are you trying to read in their face? Yeah, well, quite often when I've finished uh, training with somebody, they've turned around and they've, they've said, oh, I've just got one more question for you. And I see them reach for their phone. And I know they're going to be saying, well, you know, they're going to bring out a face of somebody. They've just started dating or they're thinking of dating. <laughs> and they go, well, you know, will this person be a good uh, partner? So one trait I can see in people's faces, whether they are quick to give what I call automatic giving. They give without thinking. Now, they will give you everything that uh, they'll see something. They go, oh, that, they'll get that for you. I'll get that for you, et cetera. They don't stop and think about it. Tiger Woods would be, a, he's got that trait. He'd be a great example of giving too much to too many people that he shouldn't have given to. Mm. Whereas with, uh, I can see with both of you, both of you are more likely to think before you give. People who get something from you, you know, I know if you give an expensive present to somebody, that person, you feel that they deserve it. You've thought about it. You haven't just rushed out and grabbed it. You've actually given time to think and you've decided that person has value and you've given them that uh, That's gift. That's very true. That's actually very true. And sorry, guys. I, I do this all the time. I've got someone in front of me and we're talking about something. I'll use a trait that I can see. Oh, please, it's perfect. Please do. Yeah. It's, it's great yeah. to actually hear it firsthand. Yeah. yeah. So in that particular case, I'll give you an example. One of my uh, coaches I was training, she pulled out a photograph. She said, would this guy be a great date? I said, well, first of all, tell me, what are you looking for in a partner? I can tell you what this guy is going to be like, but what are you looking for? I said, tell me, are you somebody who needs to know that you're loved? You need to know it. If the other person just does something, then without them, you know, unless you know, it's, it's just give you something, is that fine? They've said, no, she said, I need to know they love me. I said, so this person with the... Uh, that uh, automatic giving trait is just going to give without thinking. Mm. There's no consideration in there for you. It's just that they automatically give. I said, so in that case, if you were needed that you were desperate to know that the other person cared for you, then somebody who's got the opposite trait who thinks before they give and you get something expensive, you know they love you. And she went, oh. So I said, you need to know what you're looking for first. You need to know yourself. And same as when I'm profiling somebody, I need to know where I am on the world scale. I read them and know where they are on the world scale. And I change the way I like to speak to match the way that they need to speak, be spoken to. And so by getting that right, I have to know me first, then I know them. And that way I can then tune my transmitter into their receiver. I can talk mm -hmm. to them in a language that they need instead of me talking my language. The five love languages, you know, words of affirmation, physical touch, gift giving and things like that, hmm. you take those to another level again because everyone's got their own language. So if you're somebody who likes physical touch and your partner just wants an act of service and you're wondering why you're not getting any loving from them, and of course you find out that you haven't taken the garbage bin out and you go, taking the garbage bin out? Well, when you realise that it's acts of service, that's what that makes them feel that they are loved, helps them to feel they're loved, 
If you do that, then you're going to get the loving. So knowing that language. So with him, you go, okay, well, what acts of service? How do I do that physical touch? What words of affirmation? How do I speak them? When do I speak them? Their physical features will tell you when those times are right. Mm. And reading their emotions, you'll know when you really need to do it. Can I ask then, Alan, too, like not say you're a dating expert or coach or anything like that, but are we subconsciously attracted to someone that, is either the opposite or the same as us like sub like do we subconsciously have the ability to read faces and pick up traits that we may be attracted to good or bad yeah we are all profiling people all the time okay okay a lot of people say is what i do uh, judgmental and i go no it's judging the situation the way you're profiling people at the moment is probably judgmental because it'll be based on past experiences how many times have you seen somebody who looked like somebody else who did the wrong thing by you? What was your feelings? <laughs> Put hands up, get away from me type thing. Yeah. And you go, but I was right because uh, they ended up behaving this way. Well, you probably created a self-fulfilling prophecy. I didn't trust them, so I act as though I don't trust them. They pick that up because we're all energy beings. We re- read, uh, recognize things in other people. And they go, they go I can't, they can't trust you. And so you were right. Yeah. But you created the situation because you assumed. Whereas if you're able to read people, you're bringing the science into it, you know. Like how many times you heard somebody speak perfectly, but something told you there was something wrong. Mm. You picked up the nonverbals or, again, unconsciously they've reminded you of somebody who's done the wrong thing by you or somebody who sounds like them or whatever it might be. So the other point could be that you've picked up the nonverbals that said that the tone of voice, the body language, the mannerisms i were using weren't aligned with what they were saying yeah so again this just uh, takes that confusion out it takes it from being judgmental to making it a firm judgment based on the science would you be open to possibly doing a little bit of profiling with us today i don't know i I don't know where to go what question to ask but what is a common you know you say you know when you meet with someone and they go oh they pull out a picture what what's a real common easy one that that you can that you could throw at us for an example to to show the listeners okay well thank you when you turn sideways i've got a couple of more of your traits as well because one i know that uh, you got dos is that you get your teeth into something and you can't let it go true so tenacious you'll hang on to it and sometimes you go past the point where you should just give, uh, let it go mm. it's uh, the one that you can see in everyone's face and this one aligns with the micro expressions or the expressions of fear and surprise the eyebrows go up when there's a big gap between the eyelash and the eyebrow somebody's eyes are up like that they pull back and they look less friendly it's mm-hmm. not that they're less friendly it's that they're more discerning when you meet them for the first time if you walk straight up to them, if you've got somebody like me it's got more the eyebrows very close to the eyes i'll walk up and except for my i'm only five foot five five foot six so if I've got someone tall, I'll stand back a little bit. But if somebody my height, I'll just come up and I'll stand close. And this is where I didn't realise before I'd learnt these things that if that person had the higher set eyebrows, they needed space. And I'd come into their space and they would feel uncomfortable and they might move back. And if I wasn't conscious of it, I'd move in. Next thing, i got a Benny Hill chase across the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So knowing that, I know that if I invade someone's space, they're not going to be able to not listen to me because they feel uncomfortable. So if I'm in a very close quarters in, say, a a packed room and I've got someone like that, instead of facing them face-to-face, which is confrontational, like we are looking straight at the cameras at at each other at the moment, I will turn my body slightly sideways. There's an escape route out here. It opens up the space around them. But I'm still comfortable because shoulder to shoulder, I'm fairly close to them. Now, that person is not that they're not friendly. They're more discerning. They like to work out who's safe to be around and who's not safe to be around. Now, if I go into a networking uh, group or a large audience and there's a few people standing around and I see somebody with high set eyebrows and I want to know who in the room I sh- can trust, they're the one I'm going to go and talk to. Especially if, if there's two, or two people like that standing close to each other, they, what they'll do is they'll stand back at first, they'll get to know somebody and they like them, they'll come in. Mm. That's how when you're talking to someone like that, if they start leaning in with a conversation, especially if you lower your voice, and they have to, you know, lean in to hear you. If they lean in, then they feel they feel comfortable. Yeah. Because they won't lean in if they don't. Yep. So you can read them, and then you can apply it. You can use your language, the tone of your voice, the depth of it, etc., to see what happens. I've actually had people where 
they've been talking to me and I wanted to go to the other side of the room, say where the bar was, instead of interrupting the conversation saying, hey, let's go and get a drink. If they're talking, I'll nod and I'll slowly turn my body and I know that they'll end up following me because I'm responding to them. Next thing you know, we're standing next to the bar. And it's usually (laughs) the barman who interrupts the conversation and goes, would you like to drink? This is ways in which you can control this. Read the person, know how to uh, work the situation. I I can imagine, Alan, you know, doing it as a joke. It'd be great content just to go around and like actually make people uncomfortable because you can read like what they they like and don't like. Before we sort of move on from the profiling, I know you're really passionate about young people and especially young kids. Tell us a little bit about the work you've done with them and teachers and parents because this is fascinating. When you think about, as I said, the facial features, some being passed down from the parents, in even a newborn child, there's up to about 10 uh, traits that I can read. By the time they're five years old, there's about 24 traits. Long before they get to school, I know what they're going to be like at school, what hobbies and sports will suit them. Then before they, or by the time they're 10, there's about 40 traits. By the time they're uh, picking their final subject, there's about 60 out of the total 68 traits, which are really starting to stand out. So before they pick their final subjects, without telling them what jobs they should go and do, in America and in Australia as well, we have the uh, job guide, which is like a white telephone uh, directory. It's got all the jobs, all the qualifications you need, all the aspects of the job. You give that to uh, somebody, you go, go read this. Yeah, not likely. (laughs) But if you turned around and you said, right, from what we're seeing, I can see that these couple of careers might suit you. Go and check these out. It's like now turning that white pages into a yellow pages. Mm. And so at that point, we can give uh, some advice to uh, people by saying, hey, I can see that these traits, these are things that you love to do. And they go, yes, okay, these are a couple of jobs that may uh, fit that category. Go and check those out. The person still makes their own choice on what they're going to do which you've got to be able to, because a lot of families will tell their kids, you should do this. Mm. I've seen people who become psychologists because every member of their family before them was a psychologist. They qualified and uh, really well at university, but they're not happy. Yeah. And so by being able to pick that out up front, you can find a career you're going to be happy at because if you're happy at your career, you're going to be more productive. The company will make more money. Mm. At the same time, you'll be happier at work. You're not going to go home and whinge to your spouse. And therefore, the relationship with your spouse is going to be better. And if you've got a better relationship with your spouse, your kids' lives are going to be happier as well. Yeah. So all of this sort of flows. So you can see why I work across all these areas, because it doesn't matter where I work, it affects the whole cycle. So now we've got the child who understands what career will suit them. So I realised that um, about 12 years ago, there was one mother in particular who asked me to profile her son. He was uh, six years old with Asperger. And the school didn't want him. After school's care didn't want him. He was on medication. She said, oh, the school's pressuring me to get him more medicated because he just, they can't control him. So I profiled him. And yes, I did it from his photographs because there's no way he was going to sit still for me. I got her to take some photographs the way I wanted them. She did that. I gave, these days I do an audio report that talks about the traits and how to interact and everything else and what things will push their buttons because I can put a lot more as I speak quite fast, as you can uh, hear, I can put a lot more into an audio because to put an audio 45 minutes together, it's going to take me quite a few hours to type it out. Yeah. <laughs> so with that, but those days I used to use a, a, a type version and she took that to the school and the after schools care and very cleverly played one against the other, telling each of them the others were doing it. And if they didn't do it, it would fail and be on their heads. And of course, nobody likes to be held responsible for things. Mm. They all put it in place. At the age of seven, when they said he would never amount to anything, never do presentations in front of the class, he was doing presentations in front of the class. Wow. A year and a half later, they were able to let the psychologist go and with the doctor's approval, actually reduced his medication. There you go. There's been a whole lot of things that have happened since then because his mother is still doing testimonial videos for me. She's part of the Campfire Project and she's become a very good friend over the years because anybody I work with, I say, well, you better like me because you're going to be stuck with me. (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be an ongoing relationship. Yeah, great. uh, We became good friends and she keeps coming back and telling me what's happening in his life. And uh, he's an entrepreneur now at the age of 18. Wow. Wow. He never would have been if he'd been on medication. Yeah. So if I can read it, see, it's not a matter of read the child and change the child. It's read the child, understand the child, understand what environments work for them and which will trigger them. 
and then you change the environment. You don't change them. Because I know if I want to change the behavior of somebody else, I change my behavior, which automatically means they have to change, they will change because I'm presenting a different environment to them. An extreme. If I go up and I yell at people all the time, it's not going to be much of a relationship. Yeah. But if I change that and I become more open, more trusting and more friendly with them, completely different relationship. People would say, oh, they've changed. They've gone from being miserable to being happy. I didn't change them. I changed the environment and they, therefore, fitting into the environment, changed themselves. And this, if I'm able to read a child, understand them, explain to the teachers and the parents how to talk to the child, they do that, there's going to be an automatic change. I had a teacher in America. I met her over here. She was part of the Buddhist community and the monks who used to come up and have dinner with me invited me out to um, uh, have dinner with them and also meet her. Worked at the after-schools camp. You know, about 120 kids that stayed after school and she had a whole bunch of teachers that looked after those kids. There was one in particular who every other day was in front of the principal because he was misbehaving. They just couldn't control him. Parents were at the end of their tether as well. And I said, right, well, if you, we'll organise a Zoom call. And I talked to the teacher and the parents. Parents were at home, teachers at the school. And I said, right, well, if you send me the uh, photographs, I'll profile him. I sent it back to the parents and the teacher again. We got on Zoom. I told them how to change the way they spoke to match the way he spoke because I did an audio for both of them at that time. The um, end result was I got a call back from the uh, father a couple of weeks later saying that his behaviour completely changed. Wow. The teacher said that he was no longer seeing the principal every other day. His behaviour had improved in class. His academic levels went up. Then about a year later, I got another email from his father he had gone from their elementary school into the middle school. He was a sophomore and he was playing baseball. His academic levels continued to go up and his behaviour had been uh, great, all because everyone spoke to him differently. It's mm. amazing. That's all it is. See, I know that you like to analyse things. You need all the information before you make a decision. So if I just gave you the overview, you're going to be going, where's the rest of the information? You're mm. going to be asking me questions. If I'm not forthcoming with the answers, you're not going to be trusting me. Yeah. But if you keep asking me a lot of questions and I'm focusing on me, I go, it's enough information there. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's the same with uh, DOS. I know that you'll find the errors in everything as well. So when you have the documents in front of you, the I's aren't dotted, T's aren't crossed and things of extra spaces and things like that, it's going to jump off the page at you. Mm. So I know with you, I've got to make sure anything I present to you is going to be nicely cover everything so that when you read it, you're going to be happy with it. It's so funny so, you say that, Alan, because um, D, I do notice D, he always asks, you, you, you'll be talking about something and you go, he, he wants you to get like, yeah, he's always like, and so what does that mean? Like he's always asking questions. So that makes a lot of sense. And listening to that, that's something we're both so passionate about, Alan, uh, the young people especially, mm. is happiness and finding happiness and not, um, it's, it really excites me to hear you, someone who is so credible in what you've done across your whole career, speaking to the young people about them being individuals. They're yeah. not just all the same. Mm. And one size fits one, all. It's yeah. not one size fits all. And I would love to hear more if that's about the campfire project, a bit more about that. And if, if that mm. is related to young people too. Yeah, it's related to all ages. Uh, but first of all, if we look at psychometric profile, I used to work with Myers-Briggs and DISC and those programs where we take people and put them in boxes. Now, if you're in a sales role, yes, to get a rough idea of somebody, be able to do that, but again, you've got to put people through questionnaires. A few years back, it was one in 88 uh, people were neurodiverse. In other words, they were different to what they call the normal. There is no such thing as normal because there's no two people on the planet who are the same. Yep. Everybody has a different personality and they've all had a different uh, story as well. The whole idea is to be able to pick up the person's strengths and then work with those. But with the psychometric profiling, that's why I had to move away from that because I wasn't getting the results I was needing. I needed to be able to look at somebody, know their personality, know how to change I like to be where I like to be spoken to to match them immediately so I could build instant rapport. It was about the speed and being able to let that person feel that they weren't being interrogated, but there was somebody who was interested in understanding them. So with children, well, as I said, it was one in 88 that were neurodiverse. Now it's one in 44. Now, I don't believe that our situation has got worse. I believe, yes, it's a combination of things. One, we're, we're diagnosing differently to what we did before, but we're also getting better at it. But at the same time, we're also losing our resilience towards things. 
each generation has been taught by the previous generation. So if there's any generations out there who say, right, the younger generation, you know, there's a problem with them, I go, if you want to know where the problem came from, look in the mirror. Yeah. Because I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. I've got Gen Y and Gen X kids. Anything that they may be doing now, as parents, they learn from by watching us, not by listening to us. Yeah. And so in that, whatever they've picked up, they've picked up from me, they've picked up from their mother, they've picked up from the environment around them. If I want somebody else to grow and be really good at what they're doing, have the right attitude and everything else, then my responsibility is to live that way myself and be that example for them. And so that's an important part of it. But it just means that everybody's going to be different to everybody else. And so if I can read that in somebody and understand them, where the Campfire Project came about was the fact that, especially with men in business, when I asked them, well, what's a major issue? You know, if there was one word you could uh, use to explain how you feel about things, what would it be? And the word confused kept on coming up. And I'd ask them, confused with what? And they said, well, at home, my thought my job was to be the provider. See, the builders that were before the baby boomers were the ones who went through wars and depressions. Theirs were all about having food for today. They taught us baby boomers to go out and get security. So we were the ones who got jobs that had superannuation. We got went for government jobs and things like that. Gen X came along and went, right, you got your food for today. You got your food for tomorrow. What about us? How We want to be recognised. So they were the ones that were the first ones that wanted all their um, their titles on their business cards and everything else. That's when we created the, the term, uh, the um, director of first impressions, the receptionist, all this sort of stuff coming out. Then Gen Y comes along and goes, right, you've got your food for the day, you've got your security, you've got your identity, but what about us? We're sticking it at home while mum and dad are out with their career. See how each generation creates the next one? Yeah. So this is why I have compassion for all different uh, people of all generations, genders, uh, ages and everything else, because I know we all interacted with each other and we all create the environment that we've got around us. We all impact. So when the men were saying that they thought it was to go out and get the resources and bring those back to the family, the problem with that was they said, well, now we've been told that we're emotionally and physically absent. We're out here trying to create and we're told we've got to be out here. We can't be in two places at once. Yeah. They said, we're confused at work as well. I said, well, in what way? And they said, well, because I know when I first started my apprenticeship and everything else, we could talk any way we liked and it was water off a duck's back. Now, the old days, somebody would stir you up and in war times, that was necessary. If you could stir somebody up and they could come back at you with good humour, you know they had your back in the war situation. Yep. But then it went into hazing where now it got turned into bullying because it was people who didn't understand what it was about and those that were delivering it to others who didn't understand it either created a problem. Political correctness has made so many problems. It was put in place to fix problems, but now it's become the problem. Yeah. We've got gender equality and everything else, and these men were saying, I don't know where I fit in the workplace. I've got to be so careful in what I say. Now think about it. If I said to you, don't think of a pink elephant, I guarantee you're thinking of a pink elephant. <laughs> yeah. So if they're told they've got to watch what they're saying, they've got to you know, be politically correct and everything else, that's when they make mistakes. They mm-hmm. wouldn't have made them normally if they were happy and relaxed and everything else. But because they're stressed out, they were. And that yeah. was then being thrown back at them. And then we had those men getting more frustrated. And in some cases, that was leading to bullying in the workplace and also um, domestic violence. If somebody's happy... They're not going to go and bully somebody else or give somebody else a hard time. They're too busy being happy. This is where bullies, this is why I don't have a problem with bullies. I'll take, I got bullied all the way through school, horrifically. If anybody should hate bullies, I'm I'm at the front of the line. But I look at them and realise that they got bullied in some way themselves. And the more I could understand them, the more I could have empathy with them. And the moment I had empathy with them, they no longer had any power over me. Yeah. And so I realised that, understanding the other person, not just putting my belief on them, but really finding out what's going on, changed my life that removed the pressures that I had. So I wasn't just learning to read other people to help them. It was also helping me in return because it's a two-way street. It's not a one-way highway. With that, I realised that those men needed a safe place to be able to come and tell their stories where they could vent without being judged, without being criticised, without being counselled. Well, I was sitting in the car one day with a guy who we were both part of a health forum. He actually organised it. I was one of the speakers. 
one of the other speakers through arrogance was just giving him a really hard time. And we're driving in the car and I said, well, what are you going to do about it? He went off on a tirade. And this, you know, steam was coming out of his ears virtually. It was like a comic show. Anyway, at the end of it, because most people would have jumped in and tried to tell him what he should do or empathise with him and said, yes, you're right, you know. And I just turned around and said, can I ask you another question? He said, what's that? I asked him the same question again. That being the case, what are you going to do? He got rid of the venting. He got rid of the, the pressure that, we, that was there. He was in a more relaxed state and he laid out a plan of attack of how he was going to do it, which was constructive. Mm. And he looked at me and he went, because he was also a, a negotiator, a mediator, and he went, and I'm the mediator, he says to himself. Yeah, he looked at me and he said, yeah, I'm the mediator after I've just done this. I went, yeah, well, you just mediated yourself. You are the mediator. Mm. I just asked you a question, set the environment, and I realised that with the Campfire Project, it was allowing men to come and tell their stories, but it wasn't a men's group because when you have men's groups and women's groups, like Me Too and Men Too were very necessary to highlight the problems. Yeah. But all they're doing now is pointing fingers at everybody, which is not solving the problem. It's creating more division between the men and women. That's why I created the Campfire Project with the hashtag We Together because together standing shoulder to shoulder, looking at the problem, we fixed the, the problem. Looking at each other, we're just pointing fingers. With that, I had women in the group from day one, but I wanted the men to lead the way or felt that they were leading the way. You know, women will have jump in and tell their stories very quickly. So I got some really great women yeah. that I trusted. I brought them in. I told them what I was trying to do. I got the men coming in. They started telling their stories, and some of the things they'd been through were horrific because when it comes to things like domestic violence, Yes, there are a lot of bad uh, men out there doing horrific things to women, but for every three uh, cases of domestic violence, the victim of the, uh, those is one of those three is male. There you go. And in lesbian uh, relationships, the amount of abuse is equal to what it is in uh, heterosexual relationships per capita. Wow. The only reason we've got more men who are doing it is because we've got more heterosexual relationships. Gotcha. So once we uh, start to realise that, hey, take the gender out of it and start looking at the behaviour, not the person that's coming from, but the behaviour, look at why that behaviour came out, what was the situation that created it, we can move more towards getting a solution. While we're looking at the people, we're too emotional, we're never going to get a solution. With that, I realised that if the women could hear how the men could speak when they felt safe to do so, that would get to start to change some of the paradigms with the women, the way they were thinking. I interviewed the men, they opened up, and some of them we said, I've never told anybody this before in my life. And they were talking about the things that they felt shameful for and everything else. In a lot of cases, I said, right, with the shame, you shouldn't feel that because you're judging yourself with information you have today of your earlier self. And I go, right, back then, did you make those decisions knowing you were doing the wrong thing? Or did you just do it with the best information you had at the time? They went, yes. And I said, right. Change that to you regret what you've done in the past and drop the word shame because you can't get rid of shame if it doesn't exist. Yeah. You name something as shame and you're trying to get rid of it and it's not shame, you'll never get rid of it. By having those conversations with the men, then I brought them into panel discussions. We started talking about drugs, alcohol, masculinity, femininity, you know, the toxicity of those behaviours and things like that. That was when the women couldn't contain themselves anymore. I was waiting for it. And I started getting <laughs> personal messages going, Alan, we love these guys. We've never heard men talk so deeply about their emotions and so openly, and we've never heard them talk so wisely about things that are affecting our communities. Is there any way we can get involved? I went, yes. Put your hands up and come in for do some one-on-ones. Brought them into the panel discussions. We increased the conversations into things like menstruation, menopause. Why would men be talking about that? If you're a father of a young daughter and she gets to that her period, I've had one father who said to his wife, stand aside. He said, I'll take care of this when you, uh, their daughter had, had a first period. And he sat down with her and explained to her what that was like and how important that was, being a woman, what she'd, she'd gone from a girlhood into womanhood and how important that was. So she got a man who understood <laughs> telling her that, the connection that that made with him and the wife's just sitting back. You've seen that ad on TV where the young boy in the back seat says to his parents, who the father at the front, Tell us about the birds and bees or whatever it is. And yeah. he starts where babies come from and he starts to explain it. And of course, they, he goes off into the technical stuff. A funny ad and everything else. But this particular father went into the emotional stuff. So his daughter understood it. 
she didn't have any shame for it. She realised that, and at the same time, while he was talking about that, he's talking about how she needs to look after herself, protect herself, what she should be looking for in a man and everything else. And there was a father who really stepped up. So we talk about those things. We've also talked about, does size matter in the bedroom? Yeah. And by the way, if any of you guys or anybody else listening to this want to know, you'll have to come into the Campfire Project and find yeah. it. <laughs> Great selling point. Can't give it all away. Yeah. That's it. All so right. you can see why that is now under the hashtag We Together. It's gone global. We've had over 500 hours of conversations in the last four years. It was the four-year anniversary back on in August 13th this year. That's uh, had all genders, all cultures, all religions in there. There's been no bigotry, sexism or racism, and nobody has been disrespectful to anybody else in those conversations. It's just been pure uh, respect, and a lot of the men and women are now doing joint ventures together, those that are coaches and uh, professionals of different forms, and they're loving the connection with each other. The oldest person I've interviewed in there was 99 years old. Wow. The youngest, that was Ted. I, I His name was Ted Hughes, and I advertised him as my TED Talk. I told him, I was going to do a TED Talk. And he went, oh, you're going to be on stage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ted. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so the youngest one to actually interview his father, going away, getting his own questions and everything else, and one of them, 19 questions and one of them, why is a dad you can give to everybody else but you can't receive yourself? They hold the interview for the best part of um, you know, 50 minutes, an hour, nine years old. Whoa. So from nine years to 99 years. Now, with young Oscar, there's a little bit of a problem there because he's matured so fast, he doesn't really fit in at school anymore. Yeah, so, um, so those kids that don't understand now start to bully. This is one of the reasons why I want to get my skills into the hand of every school teacher, but also in the hands of the um, children as well. So my youngest student now is my 11-year-old granddaughter, at the age of 13, she's now my business partner. We're doing some projects together. Wow. Uh, over the two years, her homework, because she picked up her father's manual and was reading that. She's a federal policeman. And then she um, wanted to learn. So I got her to look at all the traits, but explain to me how she would talk to them and everything else. So her content went into my new master manual, which I delivered back in uh, February to a room full of dentists doing their uh, training, a two-day master course. They saw her accreditation in the front of the book because I mentioned her name in there and they said, who is this? Is this your partner? I said, no, this is my granddaughter. And by the way, her content is in this manual. And this weekend, we're going to find out if your academics are as smart as a 13-year-old. Yeah, that's <laughs> and crazy. And that's how I started the workshop. But, oh, um, before that, it was a 14-year-old boy and a 15-year-old boy. These were about well, four or five years ago. So they'd be both grown up now into uh, manhood. But the uh, 14-year-old, I asked him, how are you using it? And this guy was, the two of them worked for the older boy's grandmother in a cafe up in the Hunter Valley. The young one was always playing up with the older women. You know, he'd always be a bit of a character. They'd give him a tip and he'd get the tip and he'd slowly put it down his top, you know, like putting it into a bra. <laughs> that sort of a personality. So when I, I asked him how he was using it and I saw this smile come on his face, I went, oh, God, no, here we go. He's gone <laughs> profiling the school teacher. I said, how's that working for you? He said, oh, he said, and his eyes really lit up. And he said, I know how to pick them. I said, what do you mean pick them? He said, I know which ones to stir and which ones to leave alone. He said, I'm stirring them more than I've ever stirred them before in my life, getting in nowhere trouble, in the, the amount of trouble I used to get into it. He goes, yeah. like, okay, probably not something I've been using <laughs> yeah. marketing to yet, but I'm working on it. But <laughs> the other boy, the 15-year-old, I said, well, how are you using it? He said, I've been profiling the other students. I said, tell me about that. He said, well, I now understand them. I understand why I don't like them, why they were pushing my buttons. And I said, well, what's that given you? He said, tolerance. Wow. That was when I knew that we need to get the hand into the hands of the kids. So one of the uh, things I'm doing with my granddaughter is we're building some flashcards because the father's learnt languages. I think he's on his eighth language at the moment where he gets little uh, blank cards. We'll write the language on one side and put the English version on the other side, shuffle them up and then pull them out and test himself. Yep. And I thought, right, well, let's get some really great photographs of people, put those on cards, talk about the one physical trait on each yeah. card, physical feature, on the back, what that trait means, how to read it, and how to talk to the person, how that person's likely to behave. That's awesome. And so my granddaughter's done all the text on the back. That was her. So she's my business partner on that. 
But what I want to do is get those into the hands of school kids. Yeah. So if you've got a little pack of cards, there's about 110 cards, but the first deck will be about 52. I've asked my, I always ask an expert. I said, who would these actually work with? If we're going to give these to teenagers, what traits would should we use? So I asked her. She's a teenager. And so she came up with the 52 out of the 110 that we've got. Mm. And so it'll be just a normal deck of cards you can put in your pocket and carry around. That's awesome. As And this is where I'll be able to use that 14-year-old's uh, advertising at that point. I can go back to the teachers when all the kids are using it and go, and by the way, all the kids are doing this, understanding each other. They're also reading you. One of the, one of the kids that I've spoken to has told me, and I'll relay that story, the 14-year-old. Now, if you don't get your finger out and learn this, you're going to be behind the eight ball. Mm. That'll be myself's approach to the school teachers. I hope this this post doesn't go too far, too wide. There might be a lot of teachers trying to stop the kids getting the cards. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see that if if the t- kids understand each other, they and the teachers understand how they need to be taught. Because I've got a, a short online course for school teachers. And by the way, all of my t- uh, programs now, online courses, master programs, and all the rest, are now being accredited as certified learning solutions by uh, the Institute for Learning and Performance right. for every industry in Australia and Asia. So anybody after to get their professional points can do my courses and learn how to read people and get their points at the same time. Right. So my target is to get it, it into the hands of the school teachers, but for parents to understand. If the the biggest problem with parents and sorry teachers and students was disrespect, that mm-hmm. was one of the things that was on the top of their list. Now, if a teacher can read a child and build a stronger relationship with them, and the children feel that the teacher understands them and is teaching to them in the way that they need to be taught, because when you turned sideways a moment against a moment ago, Daniel, I could see that you you pull ideas together. You're a, an objective thinker, so you a teacher can bounce around the place, but you can pull it together. Someone who's sequential is like painting by numbers. I have to learn it as it goes. Everything has to sort of connect. Yeah, you've got a teacher who's got your trait, and they're bouncing around. That child is lost. They'll learn a bit of it. The teacher jumps over here. There's a chasm they can't get across. So that child will then get frustrated if they've got a couple of other traits where they can't sit still because it's physically difficult. They're going to fidget and move around. If they've got a trait that says that they're easily distracted, a little bit like DOS, then they're going to turn around and be looking around because they're uncomfortable. They've lost it you know, where everybody else is up to it, they're frustrated, and we label them as having a problem. Yeah. If the teacher had understood that in the first place, the child who's got a sequential learning style, they usually struggle at school, but if they decide they have good teachers and they decide they want to become a teacher, they usually make the best teachers because they will teach everybody in that very structured order. The objective thinker can get it, but the sequential thinker doesn't get left behind. And they will understand if a child goes, excuse me, miss, or excuse me, sir, I don't fully understand that. The teacher relates back because they know what it's like. And they go, oh, yes, well, okay, and they can fill the gap in. And that child doesn't get left behind. Mm, it's amazing. all through the cracks. See how all this connects and why I'm so passionate yeah, about it. It's amazing. Oh, and we could speak to you for hours because there's just so much we, we could go down. But... As you notice, I can speak for hours. <laughs> oh, we could listen for hours. I know we've taken up you know all your time today and I don't want to end the podcast so abruptly, but for those that do want to get in contact with you, what's the easiest way to do that? It will obviously be in all our show notes, but the easiest way to do that? Well, the easiest way is just through my website, which is uh, my name, alanstevens.com.au. Alan with one L, A-L-A-N, and Stevens, S-T-E-V-E-N-S.com.au. They can find out a bit more there. They can go get the uh, contact form and get in touch with me. But there's also the Campfire Project. They yeah. want to know about that. And that is thecampfireproject.com.au. We might have to get you back on and, and go a bit deeper into that because I think there's so much we could talk about there. But, Alan, just really appreciate you jumping on, being so generous with your time. Oh, it's been an amazing podcast. So, yeah, just can't thank you enough. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate your time. I really appreciate what you guys are doing as well. So thanks for the opportunity. Because it's because of people like you that more people hear about what it is that I do. Mm. And my target now is to create and train my competition. I want more people doing what I'm doing, but they've got to be doing it right. So I've got a moral obligation, I believe, to train them. Amazing. I love that. Awesome. Well, thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you.
D, wasn't that episode just awesome? Oh, mate, I got so much out of it. I'm sure you did too. And of course, thank you to everyone who listened. Guys, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to the podcast over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For sure. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple. It goes such a long way to helping the show. And of course, you have your chance to get a shout-out. Don't forget to go and follow us over on Instagram as well. What's the Instagram, D? It's at D underscore. D-O-S-A-N-D-D underscore. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you in the next episode.